Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 112 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we discussed how to train law students in law practice management and legal technology. In this episode, Tom has graciously let us take on the topic of LinkedIn and talk a bit about the just-published second edition of LinkedIn in One Hour for Lawyers, written by Allison Shields and me. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, as you state, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, I'll be talking with Dennis about that latest edition of the book he co-authored with Allison Shields, LinkedIn in One Hour for Lawyers. In our second segment, we'll talk about my upcoming trip to China for business and whether I should be concerned for my technology security. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start using the second this podcast is over. But first, let's get started on our main topic, and that's LinkedIn. It was I, I went back and looked. The, the last time we talked about LinkedIn was just over a year ago, and I talked with both Dennis and Allison about their brand new book, LinkedIn, in one hour for lawyers. And after only a year, they are already out with a second edition of the book. So, D Dennis, there must have been a whole lot of new features over at LinkedIn to prompt you to write a new edition. What should readers expect to find in the new book? Well, you know, it's in, in a way, it's not so many new features, but major interface changes and, and some, important, uh, some important new features, some features taken out, and uh, it's a significant, uh, significant update. I mean, basically, all the graphics in the book have been changed and, and updated. In fact, I can tell you over the summer, they were updated a couple of times because the interface changes kept happening every time we thought, thought the book was done. Um, big changes in the area of connections, uh, you know, so the, the chapter on connections is completely rewritten. And so there's major changes uh, throughout the book. So it's, it's a very significant up, update. Um, and it was, uh, like you said, I don't know that we expected this fast of an update cycle on the book, but uh, there were so many changes happened with LinkedIn in 2013, as, as many people are, are aware of. And we reached a point, time where I think we were talking about potentially doing the the update, and then uh, Allison called me one day and said, "You know, I'm the clients that I have that I'm training on LinkedIn are telling me that what they're seeing on LinkedIn is different than what they're seeing in the book, and it's starting to happen on a consistent basis." So we said, "Let's let's go ahead and 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 do the update, and also." Uh, do another experiment with that LinkedIn book that uh, we might talk about on this podcast, or we might save a surprise as a surprise for later. Well, so uh, you say that you say that there's been some major interface changes. You say the con the, the connections area is, is you had to completely rewrite that. Uh, what are what are some of the major interface changes that you have noticed? I mean, is it really just a look and feel, or or is it is it something more than that? Well, there is that look and feel, uh, grouping of features. A lot of them are, are positive, you know, in a way. I, I mean, I think the, they've done a great job of, of consolidating even more of the privacy and account settings. That's easier to handle. But, but I think some of the places that you looked for things are a little bit different. There's a, sort of more uh, 
image icons as opposed to words. Things are slightly different places. The emphasis is a little different. Some of the, the things that, if you're a longtime user, you were just used to doing things in a certain way, have been uh, hidden a bit, and the emphasis has been, uh, has changed a bit because of LinkedIn sees itself uh, more uh, going into the area of, of being a content provider, and they're also working on the idea of becoming a whole uh, contact management solution. So you're seeing more of that. Uh, that was just starting to happen, and it's still just starting to happen. So there's going to be some changes in that area that, that are not going to make it into this book because those are still rolling out and, and still still being worked on. So I, I think that for the most part, if you go to LinkedIn, you, you're, you're going to recognize it. it's not that drastic, but you're going to you know, notice that it feels more modern, and that uh, you know some some of the standard things are called by different names or look a little different, and, and things are are grouped in a somewhat different way. So I guess maybe the lesson there is is really the same lesson that anyone would have with uh, with many of the social media sites that we see, which is that uh, that th- these these social media sites are changing on a regular basis to adapt to. Uh, to the way that the companies think that uh, users want to use the system, they react to feedback of people on on using them. They uh, they they're kind of copying other social media services to, uh, to 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 try and find something that works that helps engage with their user. Is that sort of the thing that you're seeing? Is just more of the evolution of a tool, and and I think you said more towards a, a content management or a content repository. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely an evolution. There's a uh... You know, in all the social media, they, they're starting to adapt more. The, they're becoming more like each other in, in a way. So you see some things on LinkedIn that you used to associate with Facebook and, and vice versa. Uh, so you see that. And then also, I, I think you get a sense with the social media platforms of the great aspect of, of cloud, those cloud-based services is, uh, I mean, it's a... It, kind of two-edged sword here, uh, but that they can update for everybody overnight. So you can, you know, one morning, and you see this with Gmail and things, all of a sudden it looks different, mm-hmm. are there new features? Yep. And those those get rolled out. And uh, a lot of times there are improvements, you know, but but things are different. And, you know, you can say like, oh, wait, you know, there, there are improvements that actually feel like improvements and they're great and you like them. And then there are improvements that f- feel like, they picked your favorite thing and moved it so you can't find it. So uh, you get that that sense in in both things. So in the area, an example in the area of connections, um, we really focus. They had this great way of uh, easily finding you know, like former colleagues or, and current colleagues mm-hmm. and alumni, mm-hmm. and it was like just part of the drop down menu, very easy to find. They got all reorganized and. Uh, you know, uh, the the colleagues or, you know, former colleagues is actually, you can do it, um, but it's done in a completely different way. And it's almost like they de-emphasize that. So that to me used to be like a, a great way to add connections to people you knew and uh, because you used to work with them. You can still do it. It's, it's just done uh, in a different way than before. And it's not, to me, it's not as either intuitive or convenient, but I suspect you know, in as time goes by, it will sort of feel normal and convenient me uh, to me to do that. Well, I suppose that's part of the the normal rhythm of dealing with cloud services is that, uh, like you said, you're going to wake up 
uh, one day and, and things will have changed and uh, it happens with Gmail and Facebook and all the major sites where there at least be someone who's unhappy with, oh, look, it does something that I didn't want it, that I don't want it to do and I can't find it anymore. And, and who knows, the, the LinkedIn might figure out that the whole colleagues thing may, uh, may, may work better the way it was before and then they, they may reinstate the old, the old feature. You know, if, if there haven't been a ton of new features that have been, de- uh, you know, unveiled by LinkedIn over the past year, there's been one new feature, or at least one that has become more prominent to me. And, and that is, and if I had to name the one thing I dislike about LinkedIn, it's the endorsements feature. Uh, you know, it seems like every single day I'm getting an email telling me that so- one of my connections has endorsed me for some particular skill. And typically that skill isn't even correct. I think most of the time it's for things that I don't do anymore. And I'm just amazed that, that, that people are endorsing me for that skill. Uh, you know, can you give me, uh, maybe our listeners, any insight about why that's happening? And do you know if there's anything we can do to stop it? Or should I just go and dig into it and try and figure it out myself? You know, it's funny you, you talk about this because I, I like to joke that I'm the only person who actually likes the endorsement feature. I hate it. And I have sort of like an elaborate argument as to why it's actually a good thing, which I will proceed to make here in a minute or so. But but I was I, I was writing what will be an ABA journal column on the endorsement feature this evening. And while I was uh, writing it, I needed to check out the way it works. So I actually went to your profile and looked at what the skills that popped up that I could endorse. And I was going to go ahead and just endorse you on some skills while I was on your, your profile page. And I think there are four skills that popped up and three of them clearly uh, were not skills that people would associate with you. Um, like one was you know, like data privacy, which is not really your thing. There's one that was training I almost endorsed you on, but then I was like, uh, I don't know whether Tom would really feel that what he does is training. He might like something else. So I ended up not endorsing you on, on anything. So it is, it is kind of tricky. And, and so let me explain the idea behind endorsements. So LinkedIn has, has really put a big emphasis on the idea of, of skills. And so you have the ability to uh, as part of your profile, add skills. So things that you do, public speaking, writing, blogging, uh, certain areas of, your, uh, of a law practice, uh, leadership, th- you know, skills that you, you think you have. You can add that to your profile and that's searchable and that be- can become really useful because it helps uh, people get a clearer picture of what it is that you do. And then as you're looking for people, then you may get a sen- better sense of what they do. So, for example, if somebody says they're in a profile, they're a litigator, but on their skills, they say appellate advocacy, you know, brief writing, that sort of thing, uh, that's different than a litigator who says his skills are e-discovery or, you know, trial advocacy. So, the skills, I think, can be helpful in, in, a, num- in a number of ways. And so, those skills start to surface, and then people have the opportunity to endorse you on those skills. But LinkedIn is sort of this ongoing experiment where it's, it's, it's trying to suggest things, skills that you might have. And that's where I think it's frustrating to some people because their guesses don't seem right. And I think for lawyers, it is kind of tricky because 
You know, I'm a transactional lawyer, and the first time I saw, you know, litigation pop up as a skill for me, or actually somebody endorsed me for that, I was like, wow, given my career, how, you know, how would anybody come up with that as a potential skill for me? So that's what I think, what I think you find. So I think it's better than it was at the beginning as the services started to learn and the algorithms have gotten better and people kind of settled down and figure out how the skills and endorsements work. So that's, that's one thing. You have some ability to manage those things and to show and hide what those endorsements are. And actually, if, if I endorsed you for the wrong thing, say I endorsed you for training and you said uh, to me, because you'd get notice of it, you would say, Dennis, training is the wrong thing. Public speaking, I'm okay, but not, not training. I could actually kind of do an unendorsement so, so that would not appear for you. So there, there's some flexibility there. And then, then also, so here's my argument why endorsements are a good thing, are potentially a good thing. So say that uh, you're looking for a speaker for your seminar or for your event, and you have a number of suggestions, and you go look, research the people on LinkedIn, as you should. And if you find that one of the potential candidates has you know, a handful of endorsements for his or her public speaking skill, and the other one has a hundred of endorsements on public speaking, I think that's potentially useful to the person who's hiring the speaker. And it's also, I, th I think, potentially uh, good marketing for, for the speaker who has the most endorsements. So I think that it's possible that the quantity of endorsements can tell you something. And I also think the type of endorsements can give you a sense of what people do well and do you know, or, or what is the focus of the work that they do. Well, I'm sitting here, and, and by the way, uh, you could endorse me for training, and that would be just fine. And you could probably even uh, endorse me for data privacy, because that's actually something I'm working on more. But if I'm, if I'm looking here on my profile right now, it tells me what all the people have endorsed me for. And they've endorsed me for things like employment law and arbitration and mediation and mergers and acquisitions. And a lot of things that I have, I have never had any experience in my entire career, whether it was legal or as a consultant. And and it just sort of amazes me. And I guess, I guess the other thing that, um, that I'm just, and I would imagine that other lawyers are pro may, may also, you know, maybe they don't think about this. Maybe it's just me that's thinking about it. But, but it seems to me like when I am clicking this to say, yes, these are my skills, that I think that there is a fine line between the idea of skills and, um, and proclaiming yourself to be an expert and to say that you're certified in something. I, I, I think that by saying that you have this skill, I think that uh, there's the potential for being interpreted in the wrong way. And so maybe, maybe this is a good way to segue kind of into the, uh, the, the, the next topic, which is um, we really shouldn't talk about any social media tool, including LinkedIn, uh, uh, without discussing ethics. And are, you know, are there any special ethical concerns that lawyers need to keep aware of when, uh, when they're using LinkedIn? And maybe start here with, with why listing people's skills is, is fine and dandy. Well. Okay, so there is, there's definitely a line, and, and I, was, you know, I wrote about this in the draft of what I was writing tonight, and I, I think my sense is that, as you say, there's a fine line. I sort of think that line is, is maybe a lot wider, and there's a lot more flexibility, but, but there's definitely differing opinions on that. So what I would say on ethics on LinkedIn is there were some issues over the years 
that you would hear, uh, you know, some of the, the uh, you know, the bar regulators uh, had talked about and had concern about in LinkedIn. And, and so one is recommendations. And, and I think the, the, whole, the whole name of endorsements is, makes it tricky for lawyers because endorsements, you know, are historically a bad thing. But it was sort of the recommendations, uh, which are sort of a more full-featured, a more narrative, the, the type of recommendation where somebody took some time and wrote about it, that raised some concern on the endorsement side on, on ethics. That's why I think endorsements are also kind of interesting, because to me, they're sort of similar to the like notion in Facebook. So it's sort of these skills pop up and you go like, hey, this is a friend of mine and, you know... Uh, I like Tom, and he's great at everything. So if training is one of the things he does, I'm gonna I'm gonna endorse him for that because I like Tom, and I I want to pat him on the back and you know tip my hat to him, and and since I know he gets notified, that it's a way of keeping in touch with him. So so that's another aspect of endorsements that I think kind of raises some issues for people because because it's. It, it's not a rating. It's not a ranking. It doesn't give you meaning in and of itself to endorse people, but it has a name endorsement. So I think sometimes on the ethics side, the initial reaction was uh, kind of uh, more negative uh, than I would think it would need to be um, just because of the name of that. So I think you, you had the issues with recommendations. Um, I think endorsements, I, I think the initial concern about that is probably going to go away. Although there is concern, you know, with the potential for, mis, you know, misleading endorsements, but you can manage, you know, as I said, you can do some management of, of what shows up there. The other thing was disclaimers. And I think it's a lot, uh, you know, uh, we've sort of learned ways that you can, uh, you know, put your disclaimers either into your company LinkedIn page or your profile. And, uh, They've moved away from the notion of specialty. So some of the, the LinkedIn ethics issues that used to be a concern, I, I think, have started to, uh, to go away. And, and also, LinkedIn is just, you know, the most popular uh, social media platform for lawyers. So I, I think there's a comfort with it. And you see a little bit of discussion about LinkedIn, but there haven't been the cases like, uh, uh, you know, on Facebook and other places where people have done something really horrible on LinkedIn. So I, I think it's, of all, I, I, there are ethics concerns, um, don't get me wrong, but I, I think that for the most part, it's, it's pretty straightforward um, still out there, out there in, the, in the world of LinkedIn. So when we were uh, talking about LinkedIn the other day, you had mentioned something um about uh, bringing LinkedIn into the real world. What, uh, maybe take us out of, out of this segment by, by explaining kind of what you meant when we were talking about that. What is bringing LinkedIn into the real world? And, and maybe what are some, uh, some final thoughts you might have for our listeners on uh, both your book and LinkedIn in general? You know, uh, yeah, because Alice and I really, I, I, I really like this book, you know, as, as we went through it. Um, this last time, and I think the book is really good, and there's some really interesting and and thought thoughtful stuff in the book. And so, what we realized when we did this book, and we got the feedback on the book, and we did presentations based on the book, that our organizing principle of three essential building blocks of LinkedIn, which are profiles, connections, and participation, was really a great framework uh, to describe it. 
And then the idea we really started to develop was that LinkedIn works best when you bring it into the real world. So I'll give you an example. The other day, I was talking to a friend of mine who had moved to a new city, and we got talking, and I said, I have another friend who I think is in the same state that you moved to um, who's doing something similar to you. Uh, and then I looked him up on LinkedIn, and I, I said, oh, my God, he's in the same city that you are. And we, I was talking to him about what, my other friend, what was on the, you know, the second friend's profile, and the two were like a perfect match for each other. And then I was able to use this, this feature in LinkedIn called sharing a profile to put the two people in touch together and to let them see each other's profiles, uh, uh, you know, and, and then they could work together to, to have lunch. So I, I think that's the notion of, of bringing it into the real world to say, okay, I see something happen on LinkedIn, um, you know, whether it's birthdays, which uh, in LinkedIn is now starting to focus on as well. And I say, this gives me a chance to reach out to somebody. I see somebody's changed a job or gotten a promotion. I can call them and have lunch. And so I think it's that notion of saying, here's what's happening on LinkedIn I bring to the real world. And when I meet people in the real world, I pull them into LinkedIn. And so, so I think that dynamic is what's really, really interesting about LinkedIn. So I think LinkedIn is starting to become even more important. I talk to lawyers a lot, and we're talking about uh, you know, the sort of informal uh, LinkedIn etiquette of you're working on a deal with another lawyer and you, it's kind of funny. It's like you wait till the deal closes because you don't want to add them as a connection. It, you know, while the deal is going on, that doesn't seem, that doesn't feel right for some, some funny reason. And it's pretty common. But as soon as that deal is over, then you connect with that lawyer because you liked working with them on LinkedIn. So I, I think uh, LinkedIn is, is starting to become used in a lot of different ways uh, for lawyers. So I, I just see it as, uh, you know, being this great platform that really fits the way that, that lawyers work. So I think it's, it's still an exciting world. It's changed some. So, and it was, it was great fun uh, writing the book and, and bringing it up to date. So as we are recording this podcast, the book is not yet out, but it soon will be. Where can our listeners get a copy of the book if they want to take a look at it? Well, definitely at the the ABA, I call it the ABA bookstore, but you might have to correct me on that time. Whether I might be called the ABA store. It's just ababooks.org. Ababooks.org is the easiest way to get there. And there's definitely, you can get the, uh, there's, you can get the iBook uh, version through, through iTunes. Um, you know, after some period of time, there'll be a Kindle version. Uh, you know, so there'll be a number of ways, but sort of the most straightforward way is, is straight through the ABA. And if you're a member of the what was formerly known as the Law Practice Management section, now the Law Practice Division, then you also get a discount as well. Absolutely. Looking forward to the book, Dennis. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. 
We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We're actually recording this episode well in advance of when you were hearing because Tom has a jam-packed international travel schedule, including a trip to, to China. There's a lot of talk these days about what security precautions you need to take when you travel to China and, and other countries as well, and also uh, what precautions you need to take when bringing technology back into the U.S. through customs just to protect your technology and, and your data. I know that, Tom, Tom, I know you well enough that you've researched uh, this topic probably pretty well already in advance of your trip. What are your findings so far, and what steps do you think you'll be taking? I, there's, there's some people who take some pretty extreme steps before they go to China. I know that. Well, there are, and, and just doing, you and I were, I was kind of looking at some articles <laughs> you and I were talking on, on Skype, and just hearing what some people do makes it sound like there's a lot of people wearing tinfoil. But the, the, more research that, uh, the more research that I've done, I believe that that, that tends to be more of the, the norm than the exception. And I think that what the, the, the rule is, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to head off. I'm, I'm going to be gone for two weeks in Europe and two weeks in Asia. And I think that my trips could not be different in terms of how I will deal with my technology. Because when I'm in Europe, I think I'll be able to pretty much deal with technology the way I'm used to the way I, 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 I'm ready to and, and, and able to, and the way I deal with it here, it might be a little bit more expensive in terms of data, but, uh, but I shouldn't have a lot of difference in what I bring with me. Uh, I really have to rethink that in China because the expectation is, and, and everything that I've read says, that you should expect that for corporate espionage purposes, people want into your computer. Now, I don't work for a huge company. I don't work for somebody that they want to s- steal my trade secrets, but I may have some clients. And they may think that my clients have trade secrets on, uh, on the computer. So I don't know that I can say nobody would find my stuff interesting. So as, as I've been reading it, there are a couple of, of rules that I find that have come out as being very standard that people are talking about. And, and here are a couple of the, the things that I've seen. Some of them are crazy. Some of them are not so crazy. The first one, and, and pretty much everyone agrees, is that you should leave your regular laptop at home and bring a loaner. Get a different computer. Uh, stock it only with the information that you need to, to go to China with, and then, uh, and then when you get back to the United States, wipe it. Wipe it immediately. The, the, there are some sites that say that you should assume that the minute you connect your computer to uh, an internet connection in China, that uh, software is put on it that, uh, will be, uh, that will be a key logging and will key log everything uh, that you ta- type on your computer, um, and that they find ways to get all the information off of it so that when you bring it back to the United States, you boot it up and it uh, sends out whatever malware is on it uh, onto your network and onto the rest of the internet. And, and, and that's how they start uh, getting into the United States computer systems. Um, whether that's true or not, I think that, that having a loaner, although I'm not sure I want to not bring my computer, I think that I certainly would, would rather feel safer with a loaner. What I thought was interesting is that everybody says, don't leave it unattended. Uh, don't leave it in your hotel room because people will come in and look at it. They say don't even leave it in your safe um, in your hotel room or in the hotel safe because state security has access to all of that. And there were actually articles that, that recommended that you put your laptop and your cell phone under your pillow when you sleep in the hotel room at night because they can actually sneak into your room in the middle of the night and steal things. And I 
I hope that's comfortable for me. I, mean, I don't know what I'm going to wind up doing as far as that's concerned. Um, clearly, they say be cautious about smartphones. Uh, there are some who believe and they, that, that because the Chinese control all the cell systems, they can reach into your phone. They can turn on your microphone, listen to you. They can update your software over the air. Um, so there are people who, don't, who believe you should pick up a, a throwaway phone and bring that with you uh, when you go to China. I think that the most interesting question right now I have is encryption. And I'm going to have to plead that I don't have an answer to it here on, on this podcast, at least at this point in time, because there are some articles that say that you are actually forbidden from bringing a, an encrypted device into China. But I've seen some other articles that say that you should prepare by providing and, and, and having the strongest encryption that you could possibly have. So I'm, I'm not real sure about whether you should encrypt or not. Lots of people say to limit your use of Bluetooth and of Wi-Fi, uh, change passwords before you go over there, and then change them again once you come back. Uh, obviously, and this is good common sense, make sure that you uh, update your antivirus and, and malware software. And then, like I said, wipe your devices when you get home. Um, now, as Dennis said, uh, it, getting over there is, is just half the problem. Uh, nowadays, we're seeing lots of issues come up when, uh, when you come home, and there are a lot of people out there who believe that... Uh, that when you try to get back into the United States, um, that 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 that, they're, uh, that the U.S. government's uh, or TSA's uh, uh, desire to see what's on your computer is is just as strong as it might be over in China. I I I, I have to say I'm at least from what I've reading so far, I do not see the, the the as much concern about that issue as I do about what's going on in China. But I I do think it is interesting. That, uh, that, that, and, and one site specifically said that if you're asked to give up your password, don't be heroic. Give up your password. Find a way to, to give them what they want, but then uh, uh, make sure that the data that's on it is secured so that, uh, so that in case they find something or in case they, they, they look on your computer to get something, then it's at least protected and, you, uh, and, and, and you're able to, to protect that information. But uh, I, I, I'm not sure that I've reached a lot of conclusions about going over there. I still have a month before I go, so I, I've, got some, uh, I've, I've got some decisions to make and I've got some plans to make. Uh, I do know that I, it can't be the status quo. I've got, to, uh, I've got to probably get a loaner device, maybe a loaner telephone as well. Uh, but I think it's going to be kind of an interesting experience. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sort of, in a, in a kind of scary way, looking forward to, uh, to trying something a little different. Well, I understand the uh, tinfoil comment, and also I, I would say that in the last what twenty four hours, you've gone from a glass half full to a glass half empty guy uh -huh, uh, yep. on the on this topic. I, I mean, I think it's interesting, I, and I look forward to uh, you know hearing the results of, of your ex experiments. And and as you were talking, I, I was thinking that you know when we talk to our Canadian friends, I you know the way. We, you were sounding about China. Sounds like they routinely sound about coming into the into the U.S. And I'm, I'm sure that the concern of people outside the U.S. has been ramped up by all the the NSA stories as well. But but I think it's a, it's a great opportunity to to you know step back and think about how you ordinarily handle things. You know, not just going abroad, but in the normal ways that you travel uh, with computers and. How how often we talk about encrypt you know basic encryption, but still carry fairly sensitive you know at least personal documents you know on computers as we travel, and we usually let convenience rule you know in terms of not wanting to uh, 
you know, put passwords on and or you know, have a password come up every time we log in or to encrypt things or to hide files and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think it's when you travel and when you're sort of faced with as you know the dimension of the issues and the discussions that, that you're researching on China, I, I think it's a, a good time to kind of step back and look at your general approach to to travel and security and and how you handle data, um, you know, on a day to day basis as well. No, I definitely think so. And and what was interesting to me is when I first started looking at this, before I even got out on the internet and saw what other people were saying about it, I just asked around and and talked to uh, to people who were both working in China now and uh, and and other people that I have worked with uh, in the past about about going to China, and they all pretty much said, "Oh, you don't have anything to worry about." Uh, uh, you can just go ahead and do what what you've been doing, and and you know you're you're staying at a at an international hotel, so uh, there shouldn't be an issue there. And I, I really think that um, based on what I've read, I I I, I don't want to call it naive, but I think that in this day and age, you cannot count on that being the case. I think you hope that uh, I I hope that I'm a small fish that nobody's going to care about the kind of stuff that I do, and and it won't be a very important information that I have. But I just don't know, based on what I'm seeing, that you can actually afford to take that chance. And now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. Well, while we're talking about travel, I, as I, and as I am preparing now to go for two weeks in Europe for business, um, I will, I guess, share the, the, the top four travel apps that I plan to use with great frequency, at least when I'm in Europe, uh, may not use them as much in, in Asia if I bring a throwaway phone. I think Google Translate and Google Maps, both tools from Google are absolutely must-have. Google Translate, just being able to tr- quickly translate um, a quick phrase or a question, or uh, you can even point stuff at a sign and Google will, will tell you what's on that sign. Uh, it, it will also read the uh, read the information out to you, read the translation out if you need someone to listen to it. I think it's truly amazing, and it uses up very little data, uh, so it's it's really great. Google Maps, of course, it's fantastic navigation. Uh, used it in Europe earlier this year, and it worked flawlessly. Um, I I absolutely have to use something like Flight Track or Flight Predictor for Android users to be able to know where the flight is. When it's coming in, is it going to be late? Uh, is it is this flight typically late? Uh, what's going to happen with my flight, and how how late am I going to be? I absolutely I really use that a lot. And then finally, um, because I just can't figure out which country I'm in and what what currency I happen to be using, I use XE currency. There are a number of currency conversion tools that you can use, but but I think that XE currency is the best. It allows you to track about ten different currencies at once, so you don't have to keep switching around. And it's a great way to, to understand how much uh, that dollar bill you have is worth in whatever country you happen to be in. Did you say dollar bill? Did I say dollar bill? I would, yeah. I would just use a, personally, I would just use a MasterCard if I were traveling. <laughs> uh, so my tip is, or uh, my parting shot is, uh, we did, we did a, an episode on, on the paperless office a while back. And when people talk about paperless office, the one thing that people always recommend these days is like the one constant is the are the uh, Fujitsu sc- scanners and so there are a number of them now i have the scansnap s1500 myself sitting right beside me as i speak and i started to scan some a bunch of stuff i had old papers and you know just trying to to get on top of of things and kind of get rid of some things and 
I was just using this thing and and throwing odd sized pieces of paper, you know, different thickness, all this sort of thing through here. And it's just really an amazing device in how well it works. Um, even when it jams, how easy it is to to free up and it just you know starts back over. Great, it's it's and it's fast and like I said, takes these odd sized pieces of paper, you know, mixed in with everything else. It just makes me, you know, second what everybody else has been recommending. You know, that the, you know, if you're looking at the paperless stuff, the the Fujitsu uh, scan snaps are just a great way to go. You know, I have to say that uh, of all the legal technology tools that that has pretty much universal love for it, it's the scan snap. I'm just uh, nobody ever has a bad thing to say about it, uh, and I think it's well deserved. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. And if you have questions or suggestions for upcoming episode topics, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet at tkmreport. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by rating or reviewing the podcast on iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.